Hi everyone, it's Jack here. We recorded an intro for today's episode, but I sort of kept, like, mumbling and fucking it up. So, we're joined by a friend of the show, Joanna Romero, who's a Portuguese journalist based in the UK, who's written for various places and appeared on numerous other platforms, and she has been reporting on the situation in Brazil over the last couple of years, and has a lot of interesting things to say on it. This is a long conversation, there's no clips, we thought we'd just let it run, although it is edited for reasons of clarity and, to some extent, length. So, I think without further ado, here is our conversation with Joanna Ramiro about the recent election in Brazil and the election of the fascist Jair Bolsonaro as its president, who will be taking office in January. Opposing the government and opposing the conservatives, I'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control. They want to uh, sideline uh, moderate voices. I don't think anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the hard left. And of course, we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any who dissent. Who are the hard left, Chris? Well, we know who the hard left are in the you know ascendancy I, I, within the within the Labour Party who associate with the hard left. You just said that we were right to right wing the hard left agenda, printing money, national without compensation, that's right. hard left-wing position, hard left, the 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 hard left, hard left, hard left, the hard left, the hard left, hard left, hard left, hard left, the hard left, 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 So do you have, like, friends and family out in Brazil? Um, I have friends. I've been there uh, once, interestingly enough, just before... Um, just before... Well, yeah, I guess it was sort of like as things were sort of bubbling up um, when the protests of 2013 and of 2012, 2013 started. Um, and I was there doing politics, actually. Uh, and do I have family? I'm, I have a couple of cousins, but I don't know them personally. So, um, okay. my, so like, yeah. But I think the reason why I've been doing, uh, just to contextualize very briefly, uh, why I've been doing so much is because obviously from the left, at least, uh, and certainly in terms of journalism, there are not a lot of people who speak Portuguese and who are reporters. Mm. Uh, so... Mm. That was sort of the category that I ended up inserting myself into in a way, always feeling a little bit like a fraud because I'm not Brazilian. I'm not an expert on Brazil. You know, like I've, yes, I've been there and I, you know, growing up in Portugal, I guess in the same way that uh, Britain has a very close relation, cultural relationship with the States. Um, mm. So does Portugal with Brazil. Uh, and so particularly my parents were avid consumers of uh, Brazilian music, Brazilian literature. And so I kind of grew up very surrounded by that. And my parents being sort of bourgeois intellectuals also talked about politics in Brazil. And when I was born, um, you know, the dictatorship had already finished, but there was still a lot of talk about you know, uh, military junta and, you know, control in Brazil and people who lived in Portugal because particularly my dad's friends who were writers and stuff, Brazilian ones who lived in Portugal because they had sort of left or they didn't feel like they could live there or whatever. Mm. Um, so, so I kind of, there was already a, um, 
receding interest, I guess, in, in the context. And so over the last few months, as things got increasingly hairier and more complex, um, yeah, I started, I started just tweeting a lot more about it, I guess. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's the remit of my knowledge of it. Yeah, and um, I mean, I, I saw you tweeting a lot about the situation in Brazil, and so I was like, well, I don't know anything about this, so, you know, it, I, I should get on somebody who does. And um, at the same time, not somebody who, as you say, is like an expert, so I don't feel too intimidated, like, so uh, <laughs> so what is this Brazil place then? No, um but yeah, like I'd say the majority of my knowledge comes from the film City of God. Uh. <laughs> well, that that does depict a few realities of Brazil, so you know that's not a bad place to start in a way. It, in the it does, it, you know, it does include quite a bit of mythologizing and romanticizing about the favelas mm. in a, in, to degree, um, particularly because it doesn't depict um, the gentrification that has been ongoing, particularly in Rio. Uh, in the favelas, you know, and, and it depicts it as a sort of, you know, the, the proper slum, which, which it was, uh, to, to degree at some point. But again, anyway, we could, we could go into that into more depth, uh, into the discussion. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I don't know. Do you guys want to start with, with, with something? Jack, you were asking what this Brazil thing was. Uh, <laughs> yeah, what, what is Brazil? What is this Brazil it's a type of nut, isn't it? Sorry. Uh, yeah. Delicious. It's delicious. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I think this is what's been um, so fascinating to people who are not familiar with Brazil uh, or haven't been until now is the fact that, you know, they know of the country for samba and favelas and telenovelas, perhaps. Um, but above all, they also know it for being the fourth is the fourth biggest democracy in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, we can go into the description of democracy in, in a minute, but certainly, you know, <laughs> A hugely populous country has been um, growing at a, a rapid speed or, or did throughout the beginning of the 2000s up until around 2013 in terms of its um, economy. It was part of the so-called BRIC countries, you know, together with B for Brazil, together with Russia and India and China. Um, and it has very much for any capitalist who is worth his or her salt uh, will know this. Uh, Brazil has been uh, one of the main sources of um, natural resources, of raw material uh, for particularly the super industrialized country that China now is. Um, and the main exports, I think, well, there are definitely soy, actually, which of which China is the main consumer. Mm. Uh, and mm. I think wood, but definitely other mineral goods. So things that you will need um, to use during the production of all the beautiful things that we now that or rather that we then buy in in the west like you know computers and 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 tv screens and whatever else and the raw materials very often will come from particularly construction actually will come from brazil they will they get shipped all the way to china and then from china we then um you know eat them up voraciously um good old consumerism right like i mean talk about globalization and 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 mm. the holistic uh, root of of capital i mean it, there, this is literally a around the world voyage uh, uh in a capitalist yeah. uh, capitalist sense yeah so brazil 
was hit by the global economic crisis, but it, I believe there was a specific type of the crisis, and I'm not an economist, which is why the actual words have slipped out of my mind, but it was like the glo- global commodities crisis um, or something, and it's this this set in, basically it's it's links to global capital, it's, um, you know, the, the sort of trade and on which it had based its economy became not so helpful to it anymore uh, and again I'm, yeah I'm really fucking up explaining that but like um well i'm not an expert either so you know like we're not gonna uh, <laughs> uh, play we shouldn't play the role of being able to explain this into detail but um well yes in the sense that brazil a lot like other uh, south american countries uh benefited from the oil boom of the early 2000s. Mm. Uh, so, you know, in part uh, as a local, eco- in ter- terms of like regional economy at large, but also because Brazil does have gas and does have oil. So it, it benefited enormously from that. And you see that in politics to a degree with uh, the rise of the Workers' Party, PT, um, which um, in Portuguese uh, is Partido Trabalhador. Um, and I'm saying this with a Portuguese accent, so if you want to cut it in the edit, by all means. Uh, it's not a Brazilian accent, if you see what I mean. Um, so, so you know, that's why, to a degree, uh, Lula da Silva is able to uh, do all these amazing things in terms of, you know, investing in, in, in social infrastructures that perhaps... You know, later on, Dilma Rousseff couldn't couldn't really do, but we can go into that in a minute. But the other thing, so so with the drop of the oil price, is what I'm trying to say, um, Brazil suffered quite enormously. But the other thing that that happened in Brazil um, that I think is is important to look at from a more uh, uh, wider perspective is the fact that through the process of redirectioning um, the country economically, uh, you know, not just one government, but government upon government completely destroyed the industrial infrastructure of the country. So uh, Brazil stopped producing a lot of the previous um, products that they used to produce and and, uh, created uh, what is, I think, uh, the import substitution industrialization process. And it's been a while since I last (laughs) last in university doing this, so you'll uh, forgive me if it's a little bit rusty. And I usually work on the Middle, Middle Eastern context, not even on, on South America. Although in these things, I mean, the persons are not too different. They're just at different times in, you know, 20th or 21st century. But anyway, um, but yeah, basically that really affected Brazil because whilst it was able to um, sort of surf on the wave of China's titanic rise, um, is also it also meant that it's constantly under the shadow and and that is a really difficult position to be in i mean like i was speaking to to jack earlier about one really useful um uh, podcast that i heard about brazil and it's by uh, it's an interview by um the guys in the dig uh so jacobin's podcast um uh, with alfred sadfield who is a professor at soas here in london and Mm. who's also a local comrade actually in the labor party and um and he's great. He's, he's absolutely phenomenal. And the other day he was also delivering a, a, a sort of lecture training political education event um, on this, which was terribly interesting. 
And, you know, he constantly emphasizes the fact that, you know, as a political economist that he is, so someone that who's definitely better at explaining this than I would be, the fact that Brazil is so dependent on China at the moment becomes a massive handicap. So so we have to think of these two elements. On the one hand, it's Brazil is now very dependent on China for, you know, economically on whatever it does, wherever it wants to um, redirect its capital uh, and, and, and in the way that it can use that. Um, whilst on the other hand, having suffered quite dramatically with uh, the drop in oil prices around from 2011, 2012 onwards. So oil constituted, or probably still constitutes a huge portion of the Brazilian economy. I guess almost similar to Venezuela in that the, the problem is not so much that they've gone in too much of a socialist direction, which, of course, the, the PT has always been a centre-left party. It's it's not introduced extreme policies, and I don't think that's been the problem in Venezuela either. Not, not, that, every, <laughs> not that everything's going swimmingly <laughs> over there. But in that both of them, both of their uh, left-of-centre governments they've had over time have maintained a kind of almost monomaniacal approach to the economy that um, is centred in a huge way around oil exports. Uh, it's not as extreme as in the case of Venezuela, as far as I understand. Okay. Um, but obviously, you know, any country that has resources like that ends up, you know, to, to that, that scale ends up relying to a degree. And, and it creates a quite lopsided um, economic structure of, of rentierism, effectively. Mm. Although it must be said that... Um, one of the things that happened prior to the PT, actually, although it's kind of still ongoing, because now it's like half state, half private in in a way. Uh, yeah, well, let's put it that way for the sake of argument right now. <laughs> yeah, is that the, the the state company that would uh, extract and ex- explore oil and gas, which is Petrobras, um, is um, well, yeah, I said is no no longer 100 uh, percent state controlled. Um, although I was just reading earlier on today when I was preparing that I think last year they still had like about 77 percent, 78 percent of of share um, of the profit. So there's still some of that going on. Um, but yeah, so that's that's basically the, the sum of, of the situation. I, it would probably be good because I, I'm sort of struggling with the, the economics. I don't I don't want to get in, uh, you know, out of my depth. Um, to, but to talk Please don't about... put me in like out of my depth. Yeah. Either, I'm <laughs> like this. I just know the minimal as a reporter about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I'm conscious of that as well. So it would probably be good to talk about the political background of this. But we can segue from the economy into that, I think. So um, the big, the huge economic problems really set in in, I believe, Dilma Rousseff's second term. Yes. When when was she re-elected? Because, um, I mean, the, the most recent time that uh, she won an election was 2014, wasn't it? And then, yeah. obviously, she was removed by a coup subsequently to that. Yes, in 2016. Yeah. Can you sort of talk about how... How the current situation where where Brazil's centre-left government fell apart and was replaced by a reactionary one, which has now been replaced by an even more reactionary one, took hold, basically? Uh, God, I think you'll have to go a bit further back than just Dilma, to be fair. Yeah. Um, I mean, if if we go back to... 
to Lula, I guess, and, and the rise of the PT and the promises that the PT uh, made back in um, 2003, I believe, was when Lula was first elected. Um, some of these promises or a lot of these promises were made to actually the, the, the poorest people in Brazil, which is a, a wide uh, uh, spectrum inside the Brazilian demographic. Yeah. And those promises to a degree were able to be um, delivered in terms of, you know, more access to education, better education, better health um, centers. But, but this really in areas that were absolutely deprived. So you do see uh, a certain level of social mobility from from the poorest in Brazil, a, a, a embitterment of their life and working conditions to a degree. Um, what you don't see in the same, certainly in the same scale, is uh, an expansion and the same sort of economic growth or wealth growth within the middle classes, the middle middle classes. So you see it actually, um, and this actually Alfredo explains far, far better than me because I don't know the ins and outs of the whole of Brazilian capital, but I can see how part private investment, state-sponsored private investment in a series of, you know, state and local infrastructures can benefit you know, big capitalists who are investing in these services, who are running these services even. Yeah. Um, but ultimately for the middle middle classes, that does not happen. You know, like the, all the things that they had been hoping for to a degree, uh, like uh, stabilization of, of the economy, economic growth that would benefit them wealth-wise as well, stabilization of uh, violent crime, they don't see it to the same degree. They see it at first, they're placated by the fact that obviously, you know, the, the better the living conditions of, of a greater chunk of the population are, everyone benefits. But then at a certain point, everyone else seems to be, this is in their view, everyone else seems to be benefiting but them. Um, and, and that creates a, a, an unbalance or a, a sort of a disgruntlement between the middle classes and the PT. And that's a sort of first blow to to the PT um, government, I guess. This is still to a degree even in, in Lula's time, although Lula is a very, very charismatic leader. Uh, so so I guess he suffered less under that. And then we come on to Dilma in, in 2011. And first round, she, she wins uh, with a very comfortable margin, still like riding on the popularity of, of Lula da Silva. Who and kind of anointed her as his successor, didn't pretty he? Pretty much. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, like, that, that would have happened with whoever, you know. Like, I mean, yeah. Dilma has a background story that makes her easy to um, mythologize to a degree because she was an anti-regime activist. She was tortured and beaten and imprisoned uh, several times. Well, one of the most horrifying things that Bolsonaro has done in, in his time as a congressman is that when he voted to impeach Dilma Rousseff, he made sure to thank her uh, kidnappers and well her, her um you know the people who kept her a prisoner and tortured her uh yeah his big uh hero uh is this guy um who's i'm just trying to google to find his name because <laughs> i can't find it ustra ustra that's it Corn, cornel colonel ustra um who was a, a military leader in brazil during the dictatorship um for listeners who don't know the military dictatorship in brazil lasted from 64 um after a military coup until 85 
Um, but yeah, this guy was like a, a maniac, really. There's no other way to describe it. I mean, he was the main, you know, brain behind all the torturing, de- you know, devices and, and, and methods. Um, he had as one of his things to put uh, rats up women's vaginas as part of a torture pro- process, for yeah. instance. That's one of the uh. most like infamous ones. Yeah. Uh, I mean, plus all the usual ones of cigarette butts and this and that, you know, being being burnt into people's bodies and y- you name it. The classics. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The the, the nice deck. Um, so so and he wrote a book and that is uh, Jair Bolsonaro's favorite book, like a sort of a memoir thing. Um, oh, God. So you know, so that's 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 kind of. You, you can see a, a level of complete, I don't know, unhingedness going on there. What was Brazil like in the interim period between the military dictatorship and Lula? What were the governments like in that time? Uh, that's probably the, the time I know the least. I know that they had a succession of, uh, you know, uh, democratically elected governments, both of sort of center-right, center-left, never so much to the left as uh, PT, even if we within the far left might think of PT as a social democratic organization, within this the very wide spectrum of Brazil, Brazil has like dozens, scores of parties. I mean, something yeah. completely unimaginable mm. in Britain, uh, uh, or, 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 or even more so in the United States, to be fair. Um yeah. So, so, you know, um, and, and, you know, they had times in which, uh, one of the interesting things that you see, particularly if you look at what happened now with the impeachment of, of Dilma and with the, uh, destruction, pre-electoral destruction of Lula once again put in prison for, uh, in a, in a corruption case and so on uh, recently, a few months ago, um, mm. when he was rising in the polls and could very well have been elected again president of Brazil. He had an insane uh, approval rating, didn't he? What was it, like 50%? Something like that, yeah, yeah. And at points, you know, depending on the polls, it was something slightly higher. So he, wow. he, he, he does mobilize a lot of people. But in any case, um, one of the things that happened very often in, in Brazil, or has happened very often in Brazilian uh, uh, governments that I've heard of, in, including since, since the, um, the fall of, of the dictatorship, is this usage of the anti-corruption case or, or cause uh, in order to undermine governments. For a panoply of reasons, you see this happening over and over again in, in Brazil. Yeah, and I think it might have been on the Chapo Trap House episode they did, where they did an interview about what's just happened in Brazil. And uh, I, th- I think it was their guest, unless it was, I listened to the This Is Hell podcast. It might have been that, actually, because they did a good episode about um, the Brazilian election. But they made a point that anti-corruption is almost always a reactionary shibboleth, because it doesn't really look at the uh, the kind of actual vested interests in society, really, what's, uh, really where the power lies. It just kind of... Um, I mean, you're, not... you're talking, I think you're talking about the Chapel Trap House podcast with Benjamin Fogel. That would have been um, it, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's, Benjamin is another great guy for this, by the way. I should, I, I basically will spend most of this conversation telling you about other people you should listen to instead of me, to be fair, <laughs> uh, if you don't mind. Um, but yeah, like Benjamin is great and, and he is a researcher in Brazil and a contributor to, to Jacobin and he's been doing lots of stuff. I mean, he's South African, but he knows Brazil. Uh, 
you know, way better than, than, than a Portuguese speaker like myself, uh, does or would. Um, and yeah, like he, he particularly makes this case. In fact, it's very interesting because he wrote a piece, um, that is based on the question of Brazil, but, but looks at corruption as a concept a bit wider. Um, and, and I found it fascinating. Interestingly enough, it was, uh, written by Benjamin, but with some, some, um, consultancy i guess from uh david broders for those who don't know who david is he is the editor of jacobin italy that has just launched um and obviously he lives in italy which is another context where obviously corruption comes into constantly yeah, in a big way yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they both they both apparently were, were throwing ideas on this and and one of the points that benjamin puts forward which i think is very important for the left to discuss because it, it's an area where it the left clearly failed in Brazil to address this question of, of corruption is when corruption becomes, uh, yeah, like a moralistic shibboleth or, or some sort of rammed, like, you know, punch the left with. Yeah, because it, well, it often comes down to a kind of cynical distrust of the state, kind of a view of it as a source of, like, uh, petty penny pinching, which is not altogether dissimilar, although there is the element of power being abused, to, you know, austerity politics or the scapegoating a benefit claimant, something like that. It mm. is not a conducive argument to left wing ideas, really, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, well, yes, absolutely. It can very quickly become a really reactionary uh, uh, quasi-ideology, right? Like, <laughs> not, yeah, not innately. <laughs> I'm not saying corruption is good. I don't. I, I'm, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't yeah. encourage corruption. Well, <laughs> uh, but this is this is exactly the thing. I mean, like, how do we talk about corruption and what kind of corruption are we talking about? And I know it sounds like a slippery slope, as as you say, <laughs> but but or, or as you're trying to avoid, but. In terms of Brazil, for instance, in, in the political system that, um, of governance that they have, and which is a presidentialist one, um, in which the Senate is in, by its very nature and construction, very fractured. And I've, to be fair, like, I, I can only understand how it works when I'm reading about it. And then as soon as I switch off, I don't understand it again because it's, it's honestly that complex. Like the way in which in order to create a government, you need to create a series of alliances and, and, and commitment or compromises with a series of other teeny tiny parties. Um, yeah. becomes very, you know, becomes very, very prone to, to, to corruption. And one could argue very similarly in, in, in Italy in terms of, if you want the support of, again, because they also have a quite uh, a complex system of governance, uh, national as well as regionally, um, mm. you see this happening over and over again in order to simply establish a, a way of governing, a way of delivering a, a welfare state or some sort of support, um, a social network, actually, for for uh, for your citizens. Um, and so one has to beg the question, what does it really mean to be corrupt when the system, the, the legal system, the legitimate system is not working for the people? Don't we have mm. to operate outside of those of those legal uh, infrastructures? Right. That said, if we even like turn this around, we could argue that, you know, Britain is one of the most corrupt countries in the world because it legally allows for a series of corporate mm. organizations to completely dodge taxes mm. uh, and, in fact, is determined by a lot of uh, watchdogs as one of the most, if not the most corrupt country in sort of, you know, the Western developed world, whatever you want to call it. I mean, so, uh, that's the thing, isn't it, basically? Sorry to interrupt. Um, I, I, the, this preoccupation with corruption implies that we have perfect governing bodies that are currently just 
sick or something, but that's not the case at all. Yeah, I mean, the uh, the pretext that the Brazilian Congress had for impeaching Dilma Rousseff was basically they found a technicality in the constitution, mm. which, what, must be about, like, 20 years old or something? Not, not really a kind of... Uh, you know, I don't. In fact, I don't, yeah. yeah, I don't even know. But but ba- yeah, basically, the, these kind of rules that don't really work very well are open to abuses. Like in mm. just as much as um, rules that don't work enable people within politics to you know skim public funds. Yeah. Yeah, basically. I mean, like in the case of Dilma, there was very flimsy. Uh, the argument was very flimsy. It was a question of mismanagement of funds. I think it was something along those lines. Yeah, it was like state spending or something like that that they got. Yeah, on. and 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 I I don't know exactly anymore how they what it was that they then caught her on quote unquote. But uh, you know, like in that frame, you could almost argue that you know if 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 you forget some sort of you know if somehow it doesn't add up. By, by the penny, uh, then then you're you know uh, legally in the wrong. Um, it's an, I mean it was the whole uh, process of the uh, Lava Jato, the car wash operation, uh, anti-corruption and investigation and inquest that that happened in, in in Brazil was was very interesting because it it um, affected the entire political class. I mean there was no one who who didn't get named at, at one point or another and yet right. the right was able to co-op the rhetoric of, of uh, combating corruption and use it as a way to smash uh, the left in particular uh, the PT obviously and, and its leaders and again I mean when, when Lula's imprisonment has been done on basically absolutely no evidence and he is the most popular uh, most possibly what could argue charismatic uh, left-wing leader of uh, of the world who is who's currently in prison for no for no for no reason technically and i presume that brazilian law prohibits people who are in prison from running for election i believe so i don't know exactly how they came to actually that's a good question i should probably google that now he, uh, he's, he's so popular he probably could have won from a prison cell like people have run for political roles from prison before in the past i mean maybe not in brazil i, I don't know but certainly yeah. around the world yeah yeah I suspect that it's not allowed purely on the fact that um, both presidential candidates for the second round, so PT's Fernando Haddad and um, PSL's uh, Jair Bolsonaro, they're both indicted in cases at the moment. And the Brazilian law states that once elected, the case can only be heard after the president steps down. Okay. So I don't know exactly how how it would work in terms of um but I'm just reading here on on Wikipedia to let you know how it works <laughs> with the whole free Lula yeah. and how they could have run from prison. Um so far yeah, that sounds kind question. of similar to the US. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if, if they just wouldn't allow him to run um <clears throat> at that point. Uh, so he's serving a sentence relating to a 2017 judgment. Does it say if he can run from there? I'm not entirely sure. It doesn't really seem to say. Well, maybe he would have done if he could have done. So possibly I'm sure this is, this is the other thing. I'm sure he would have because he is uh, the smoothest operator you have possibly ever seen in politics. I mean, like, you know, I don't particularly love the man uh, po- politically because I'm I'm wouldn't say I'm a social democrat and and I think that ultimately he is I mean he was a trade union leader he's a he's a a man yeah, yeah. 
who is very political nature is is used to making deals with capital you know like that's what trade unions do they fight for workers rights and at some yeah. point strike a deal mm-hmm. um hopefully for the best uh and and he's very very good at it and and he has been able to apply those skills just as much to to Brazilian politics and credit where credit's due he is probably one of the most astute politicians we've seen in the 21st century and we might actually even see in the 21st century this is a big claim given that I probably won't be here for the entire 21st century <laughs> but, uh, uh, but in any case probably for my natural life at least um, he, he is he is rather extraordinary in the way that he operates there isn't much more more to say uh, about it rather than the fact that he's able to bring together all these different strands of both Brazilian capital as Brazilian politics, Brazilian even Brazilian mi- military to a degree, and all sort of different strands of, of class organizations. And and in a country that is as heterogeneous as Brazil, that is a feat and a half. So, I mean, her dad obviously wasn't able to uh, drum up the same amount of enthusiasm as Lula was, despite being endorsed by Lula. Um, so, I mean, where next for the PT now? I mean, how how was their campaign, um, given, you know, their hugely popular candidate being imprisoned, running against this kind of unstoppable fascist juggernaut? Like, did did they hold up okay? Because the guy from the, uh, the, the guest on The Dig... Um, Alfredo. But yeah, go on. Alfredo, yeah, he said that uh, Lula was the kind of unsung hero of the campaign because he had been able to make Haddad, from a prison cell, a viable candidate. Um, But obviously not viable enough in the end. Um, Part of what they said was that a lot of Lula's social base is kind of too poor and fragmented to really organise. Yes. Does the PT have a viable base now, essentially? Because a lot, uh, you know, not all of it, but, a, you know, a significant portion of traditional PT voters ended up going for Bolsonaro. The answer probably is no, or else they would have won, I guess. <laughs> um, but, but no, but beyond that, I mean, this is a bit of a cross uh, comment because ultimately, you know, if we're going to look at this from a very uh, analytical point of view, PT has lost a series of different demographics um for different reasons as said before when we're talking about dilma um it lost originally or or even about lula's residency it lost a sort of petty middle classes throughout throughout government because it couldn't deliver for them it then lost smaller capital and and land-based capital uh which is a big chunk of Brazilian's capital because it couldn't deliver for them either. And then it lost big capital too, as as we've seen um, in, in this election. Very clearly that that is sort of what happened. And I guess to a degree, in order to convince these elements to, to come back, they they would have had to have someone full frontal who, who 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 would be that charismatic and again that would have to be Lula the, neither Dilma for sure and and neither Haddad would have the or have the personality or the skills uh, or the charm to, to to do that then there's a question of sort of the, the working class poor base of uh, support for PT um and they have the ones that have abandoned uh, uh the PT in my view and this is 
one of the things that I can actually say uh, from my own analysis, rather than just like parroting what I've heard other people say, I've felt from covering Brazil in the last couple of years that the PT has failed by its very nature at delivering uh, for the utmost poor in terms of because it started feeling like the the ground was was you know moving beneath them. It started making a series of compromises with, with again with Brazilian capital uh, and 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 not delivering for the class that it that it had promised lots to that it had delivered to a degree and then couldn't continue delivering. And and at points in which it should have become a far more radical party in terms of supporting uh, the trade unions a lot more and and going for radical reform of, of the state, um, going for possibly full uh, renationalization of a series of industries, uh, it did not do that. It, it, it trembled and it feared um, international capital as well as Brazilian capital. And, and then it lost this big chunk of the population that felt they were not, they had been betrayed, I guess, to a degree. And it was interesting because I was listening to a few podcasts, not from uh, necessarily people who are experts on academics on Brazil. I mean, there will be experts on Brazil, but there are correspondents and, and or reporters on the ground during the, the electoral process um, this year. And every single one of them says that when they spoke to those people, they would have thought would hate Bolsonaro the most. So, you know, minorities, women, LGBT, uh, the black mm. community, those who support Bolsonaro would always say, well, we want change. This is what we want. We want change. And ultimately, mm. the reason why they want change is because change didn't truly happen under uh, under the, the PT governments and certainly didn't mm. happen under under Michelle Temer's interim uh, government the last couple of years. I was listening to another academic, so I'm going a bit on on this, but like I was listening to an academic who's very good, Brazilian, lives in, lives in well, yeah, he lives in Brazil, but he goes to Portugal very often and I've heard him a few times. He's also a, a comrade. Him in, um, oh, I can't remember which one it is because there's two far left parties in Brazil that are sort of the biggest ones and I can't remember which one so won't, I won't say which one it is because I can't remember which one it is. And they all have similar acronyms as well. So it's kind of hard to, to keep up. <laughs> in any case, this is such a typical thing of like, you know, the people's front of Judea, Judea and people's front. But, uh, but in any case, he, uh, his name is uh, Valerio Arcari and he has written at least one, if not more books on the PT and on the phenomenon where it failed. And the big thing that he always comments is, you know, the, re the reformists who didn't do enough reforming. Um, and I think that's, mm. that's a very simple and, and, and correct way mm. to look at PT and the, the big failure is that they did do some things and they certainly lifted thousands of people out of poverty in Brazil. And that is no mean feat, but, or rather that is a mean feat, but, um, uh, <laughs> But that's still not enough. You know, they didn't shift enough plates in order to to change things around in a way that was sustainable. You know, that was long lasting. Yeah, and, uh, and that's just a common thread that uh, you know we see currently running through British and uh, to a large extent uh, American politics as well. Absolutely. This uh, feeling of so-called white working class who's being ignored i mean the whole working class is being ignored obviously mm -hmm. and yeah so that and, and for some wow. reason that just seems to push a lot of people to the right because they, they want change as you said joanna i, I don't it baffles me but yeah i mean this is the thing you, you saw you saw a lot of uh of the black community in in the states disillusioned with with the Obama uh, presidency to the mm. degree that there had been plenty of promises made to 
to the black community about their rights, about their safety yes. that ultimately wasn't able to be delivered. And you see that, I mean, I don't know how many of them voted for Trump, but, uh, mm-hmm. but one thing doesn't necessarily have to lead to another. You know, disgruntlement can also be, be shown in, in just the, you know, yeah, even it just means not voting at exactly, all. Or, exactly. Yeah. And in Brazil, you still saw, I mean, Brazil, uh, speaking about abstention now for a split second, Brazil has mandatory voting, so so you're, uh, you're obliged to vote. Although, that said, their average abstention rate is of around 30%, and this year was around, still at the second round, about 20%. So you can see, you know, the alienation. Exactly. Or even... Like actual disgruntlement, the sort of fuck you, like, you know, I'm already dying out here on the streets. Why should I care more? You know, like one yes. way or the other, I'm probably going to be the one hit. So, um, so yes, like there, there is that. And yeah, and like Bolsonaro is a very different character from much like one could argue about uh, uh, Donald Trump for that matter, a very different character from your usual, you know, political suit. Before we get on to Bolsonaro, I just wanted to elaborate on the point a minute ago. Um, so the Workers' Party in government pursued a very kind of consensual form of politics, often with groups that weren't interested in establishing consensus, such as uh, when Rousseff tried to make compromises with capital in her second term, and for instance, she appointed just basically some big businessmen uh, recommended by the sort of <laughs> consortium of Brazilian businesses, whatever they're called. Um, she was like, who should be the finance minister? And he, and he was like, well, this guy. And she was like, okay. That didn't work out. But yeah, I guess it is an issue when a government's reforms can be rolled back uh, so so quickly when you get a reactionary government in. I remember reading when the interim government took over from Rousseff, there was uh, just a huge load of legislation put through instantly to like do all these terrible things like um, get rid of all these social spending all the all these equality legislations and yeah it's pretty much it shows the limits of social democracy because it's not a fundamental and irreversible change in the balance of power and wealth it's very much reversible absolutely and and mm. i think i think one of the you know, by its very nature, problems of reformism is how it seems to forget or it seems to ignore the fact that capital capital can be incredibly flexible and can adapt itself to situations in which it has to compromise to a degree that it then can also like reassemble forces and come back and, you know, and, and, and completely overrule whatever it had um, oh, yeah. been accepting up until that point. I think the interesting point here and this is why everyone is sort of paying attention to it is the fact that we find ourselves in a political position worldwide in which these uh, middle of the road reformists um, from either side reformists from the side of capital of accepting a series of, of demands from 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 the working class or from working class organizations accepting a series of, of restrictions by capital are no mm. longer accepted by either one or the other and 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 you're seeing that then reflected into the the different results we've seen across the globe in terms of either you can we can mention Donald Trump and and, and Bolsonaro and the rise of the far right in, in in Eastern Europe, but you can also to a degree talk about the success of Jeremy Corbyn in 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 the Labour Party in in Britain. So these are always I think to different you know in different situations, different con- socioeconomic contexts, but always reflections of an age of polarization because there is an economic 
clash, but a, a true class war at, at play here. Like there's no longer space for for compromise between these two these two forces between capital and 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 the working class. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, I think now we should probably talk a bit about Bolsonaro himself, about who he is and about what he represents for Brazilian politics. And in fact, I mean, he's fascinating. I, I barely know anything about the guy apart from what I've heard on Twitter. You know, I mean, he is. A little bit like Donald Trump, although, and I hate to say this because he loves being compared to Donald Trump, <laughs> uh, which I hate to Fucking think hell. that I'm using him somehow. He seems to have more of an ideological core than Trump does. Right. That, yeah, pos- I mean, it depends what we define by ideological uh, I guess he doesn't have such a vinculative relationship with capital, with established capital. He's far more of a maverick in that sense. Uh, he's probably very much Jair Bolsonaro for Jair Bolsonaro, you know. Um, but at the same time, he's also in an environment in which he's available or has the possibility of expressing um, his very vile views in a way that Donald Trump does not, cannot. And whenever he has, has been, there's been massive backlash. Uh, and yes, it has gathered him some, you know, accolades from the, the alt-right or the far right or whatever you want to call them. Of course. But not, mm-hmm. not to the same, um, uh, electoral degree, you know, with the same results as it has clearly in Brazil. And, and just to obviously recap on, on Bolsonaro. I mean, I don't know how much you want me to, to talk about him in terms of the man himself, but we can talk first about the horrible things that he has said. Yeah, uh, I, w- I was just going to ask you about what, what his views are. And, and I would say that probably that, that when I say he has more of an ideological core than Trump, I, w- I mean in that he seems to be kind of grounded in the... Uh, you know, in Brazilian rightist thought. Um, in, in, he's read that book by the torturer cover to cover and loves it, whereas Trump has not read any books. <laughs> yes. Well, I don't, you know, I don't know how many uh, uh, Bolsonaro has read uh, <laughs> either. Maybe this just like it happened that this fell on his lap and therefore it's his favorite. But <laughs> you ask me. Um, I mean... Uh, his politics are, uh, or ideology, if, if you want to call it that, um, are very uh, authoritarian, based very much on uh, an element of nostalgia. Um, I always find it very curious, and here I, I am disclosing my Portuguese bias, um, that one of the senators he was supporting, or I, well, same party, I suspect, um, so, you know, someone that, that Bolsonaro was campaigning for and who was campaigning for Bolsonaro. The Social uh, Liberal Party. Yes. Uh, this is an interesting way of putting it. Anyway, um, but I don't remember his name, but I'm, I'm pretty sure he was an evangelist because it came. The way I found out about this came to the fact that I was covering the story about, you know, like the amount of evangelist candidates. And, is Bolsonaro um, like a hardline Christian? He is definitely a Christian. What he is right now, it's a bit different because he was raised Catholic. His current wife is an evangelist he has the support of loads of evangelists uh like openly you know and in fact we can go into that as well how there was much of the campaign was done either through social media or through churches oh okay yeah i didn't know about the church dimension oh it's it's again like morbidly fascinating but just yeah to finish on a very quick note, like this guy who was a big fan of Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro supporting him, and his tagline, his slogan, his campaigning slogan was 
uh, I'm translating this now from Portuguese, God, uh, fatherland, family, right? And this fatherland. is exactly, well, yeah, like, like, um, yeah. There's pat- some disturbing undertones Deus, there. Deus yeah. Pat- overtones. Yeah. And, and, but the, but the overtones, interesting thing about yeah. this, the, the, or the most, like, which I'm sure is not coincidental, this was the slogan of the Portuguese dictatorship, word by word. Oh, wow. <laughs> and family was, you know, the imagery, it's all there. And, and, and obviously, again, as I said, like, as a Portuguese person, I find it absolutely fascinating um, that, you know, like, the, the words of, of, of uh, an arguably fascist regime are just being reproduced in the same language just across the Atlantic um, and, and used as a campaign in 2018. So, so there's that. And to be fair, I suspect that, you know, even though he didn't use it himself, Bolsonaro wouldn't be against a slogan like that. Uh, the God part is, I don't know what he feels about himself. I mean, the first thing he did when he delivered his victory speech was to pray. So that tells you something already. Mm-hmm. Um, which is odd to say the least before he said anything. Whether that is an evangelist Christian Christian God or a Catholic God or whatever, it's clearly uh, it's not it's not so clear. But that, to, to be fair, at this point, doesn't really matter. Uh, family, he has used this. I mean, two of his sons are in politics as well. Um, oh God, and they're fucking awful as well, aren't they? Like they're proper pieces of shit. Trumpism thing, except for the fact that. Uh, 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 Bolsonaro is such a misogynist that he said he has a daughter, one daughter, and he said about the birth of his daughter that it was a moment of weakness. So, you know, <laughs> like, like the sort of clearly Oedipal things going on or, or Clinton-Nestra things going on in the Trump administration with, with Ivanka, uh, uh, with Bolsonaro is like straight out women in the kitchen kind of kind of idea um but yeah like mm. god fatherland and, and and family and the fatherland situation is very very obvious i mean the the repetition of the you know make brazil great again really um mm. has has been has been i mean he, he took loads of, of, of well copying straight out i was going to say inspiration but you know like straight out copy pasting from from trump um, and, and yeah, and, and, and it has worked in some sort of craving for, uh, you know, national pride or for some sort of sense of uh, identity in the 21st century for Brazil. Um, it, it clearly stroke a chord with, with, with a large chunk of the population. Um, and he, he's promising to deliver the undeliverable, um, but that is something for, for the next year or so for us to, to analyze rather now. He pledged in his victory speech, didn't he, to protect all minorities and something like that. And it's just like, yeah, okay, bullshit. But, I mean, there are already some signs um, of, say, who he might... He's So he's still president-elect at the moment, isn't he? But there yeah. are already some signs of who he might appoint when he gets into government. And yes. I think he said he's going to fill his cabinet with a bunch of army people and his finance minister is going to be like some literal chicago boy like yeah. uh, always a some, good sign yep. yeah some some freedman acolyte from the chicago school so um i can imagine there will be some pretty extreme neoliberal policies implemented i mean there was that article in the ft the other day bolsonaro looks for a uh, a pinochet style economic fix uh this yeah, whole time I, mean, I have just been thinking Pinochet, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, they, they, these people, like, unabashedly love Pinochet, don't they, he, Bolsonaro? He has, he has, he has said himself, he said that, you know, like, Pinochet 
didn't go far enough or something along those lines. I mean, he said it. Yeah. There was there is enough recorded stuff about this man uh, that he has said or done that that is absolutely atrocious. I mean, yes, he said um, what he said on on his victory speech was that you know we need to respect everyone in Brazil. Rather, and he even said the words of you know regardless of whether you're Brazil by birth or by heart or something like that. Mm. Um, and but but what he really put an emphasis on was sub, uh, respect the constitution. Now constitutions can obviously be changed and have been changed very often mm. by by authoritarian governments. So I yeah. wouldn't go I wouldn't go down that. But also like uh, and we could we could also talk about the amount of things that he has said prior to his electoral campaign and even on the electoral uh, uh, campaign, even if not necessarily whilst at a rally per se. Yeah. That are completely just flabbergastingly horrendous. I mean, from uh, saying that black people are not even useful for procreation purposes to, to, no, I mean, like it's, he's very well known um, for having said that he would rather have a son die in a car crash than being gay. Um, Yeah, I remember that one. Then that, you know, if your son starts behaving a little bit gay, just crash them around with a, with a leather belt and, and, you know, that'll kick, kick it out of them. Um, oh, yeah. He told a woman that she was too ugly to rape. Didn't yeah, he? that's not just any yeah, woman either. Fuck. Fellow lawmaker, uh, fellow uh, uh, federal deputy that had, and she's a big um, human rights activist as well. And oh, wow. she was confronting him on TV. Well, they were being filmed at the same time outside of the chamber. Uh, this is in the 90s, I think. And um, yeah, like she kind of. She is being insistent, but she's, you know, like a few steps away from him. And he just kept saying, like, you, how dare you, slut? This is what he says. Uh, I, I wouldn't even I wouldn't even bother raping. You're not worth raping. And then he has brought that back, actually, recently in another confrontation with her. He has used the same language again. Wow. Nobody can put it as a com- comments that he made when he was younger and, and didn't know better or something like that. Um, he's definitely mm. stuck to that rhetoric, even if now being elected, I'm sure that, you know, much like Trump has changed some of his rhetoric once in power, that might, might happen. Yeah. Another interesting thing from the Brazilian population reaction to all this, you know, because obviously a lot of the debates that were being had before the election were people who were against Bolsonaro saying to people who were supporting him, like, but how do you support this? You know, like he said all these things. And a lot of people just say things like, oh, you know, that's just like he's just a hothead. He doesn't really mean it. And and it's, it's locker room talk, right? Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. It's a very similar uh, uh, argumentation. But then at the same time, and this is what is dangerous, you know, like he, the man ultimately, and I think it's interesting, and I would like to hear your guys' f- thoughts on this. Is he a fascist, right? Like this is the question: Is the man a fascist? A lot of people will say that he is. A lot of other people say that technically he's not a fascist because, you know, if you look at the infrastructures uh, behind him. Um, he isn't. I would actually, and I disagree here with Alfredo, the the, the professor at SOAS, um, because I I think that he is for for the simple for a simple few premises. A he has an absolute hatred of the working class and working class organizations, um, mm-hmm. and has as part of his agenda completely demolishing these these organizations and and you know the political representation of the working class in its, in its emancipatory sense in in any way, shape, or form. Obviously, he has all the bigotry and racism that we talked about. Um, but then beyond that, he does have a social movement behind him of some sort of mass mobilization that is chaotic, that is 
not following anything other than than this wild, super aggressive macho rhetoric that, that he has been putting forward. But he also has a party, and the party is not necessarily a vehicle that he has been very good at using. He's been in about like nine parties in his whole political life. Uh, mm-hmm. jumping around. He's never been in any of them long enough to be part of, of the leadership until until this, until PSL. And um, But that said, that does not stop him from being able to organize even further once he is in power or, or well, from, from now on, from, you know, he's, he's being uh, yeah. sworn on, on the 1st of January. Um, but even now, pre, pre-taking, pre-taking on the, the presidency, uh, he could be organizing. And in fact, throughout the last few weeks of electoral campaigning and, and the, the days before uh, the election, the second round election, um, he was appealing to his supporters on social media to volunteer as tellers uh, they could they could register with 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 the party in order to be tellers in order to control whether there was no you know some sort of corruption happening at the at the yeah. at the the, the, right. uh, the anti corruption uh, shibboleth again again but also at the same time this is a brilliant way if we think about it very uh, cynically of actually just getting a lot of members in you know like <laughs> there there's been there's been a drive there's been a massive drive by the party to like go out and and actually register people and that's how you start a political party that is a fascistic political party you know like you could even uh do some corruption with uh having your people <laughs> as patellas well yeah of course and i'm sure that he's been involved with a series you know that are not known with a series of co- corrupt uh, processes here and there like i mean he's he's a, a minor backbencher in brazil i mean like you don't survive those many years without like being embedded with all sorts of odd people and he does have like three big lobbies uh, or rather he has been able to appeal to the three big lobbies um in uh the brazilian senate which is uh oh let me see the the mnemonic is the three g's so it's the gun um uh, it's, it's not to the someone from america i'm afraid uh so it's it's the gun lobby it's the um cattle lobby because obviously uh cattle is a huge economic uh fat brazilian sport. steak is famous yeah cows in the south cows in the north there is there is well particularly in the in the north actually uh, in the northwest <laughs> big culture of uh of cattle so it's because it, in, Port- in portuguese gado is cattle so gg guns uh god cattle and the other g oh god i'm gonna forget about him or not I'll have to double check what it is, but like he basically has been able to, and this is going to really gas. Okay, sorry. gas. Yeah, that, I was thinking, is there uh, a G synonym yeah. for oil? Uh, yeah. So like that, those are the three. Those are the three big lobbies of of capital in in, in Brazil, or that you know like really powerful um, inside decision making processes, and and somehow Bolsonaro in the last three months has been able to round them all up around his figure in part because the right hasn't really been is just as fractured as the left and hasn't really been able to put forward another candidate because the man has until very recently been mocked for how you know the guy is unhinged he seems very mockable (laughs) yeah yeah i mean he's it's he says things that you would yeah yeah it's just i mean like even if it wasn't so scary (laughs) well yeah exactly like People often refer to the fact that, you know, like he speaks proper Portuguese rather than Lula, who speaks a very colloquial working class Portuguese. Um, mm-hmm. But even then, 
the way in which Bolsonaro expressed himself, he is no intellectual by any stretch of the imagination. So, yeah, so it's not it's not difficult to mock his very uh, uh, outrageous views on on a series of things, even for for conservative viewers, I I, I suspect. Um, and he's not very bright, you know. Like this is a guy who was for twenty years he's been in politics and he's had two bills passed. He's completely useless in a series of things that he's that he's attempted to do. I mean, he's a captain in the military or was a captain in the military and the reason why he got kicked out of the military sort of like his military career ended in a bit of a, a, a disgrace um was because he attempted a failed coup of some sort of <laughs> attempt um uh terrorism it's not even a coup it's like a terrorism thing uh, but oh. it failed completely flopped and then he he wound up being uh found out as one of the organizers and was obviously kicked out of the military and this was in Back in '88. Um, uh, as long as it's right-wing terrorism, it's fine. <laughs> Rather than like trade union organizing or terrorism like that. Talking to the IRA. <laughs> that people say about you know how cool and strong he is is the fact that he's like a para like he parachutes or something. And it's like, <sighs> when is that the kind of qualities that we want in the leader of a nation? But you know this sort of and the fact that his wife is beautiful and it's like a bit of a Barbie and it's probably half his age for all I for all I can see. One of the things that needs to be pointed out um for those who who don't know the Brazilian uh, society and the context, like it's an incredibly class aware society, right? Like the, the hierarchy is very strict. Um and then you see that in a series of I mean I you could say that to a degree in Portugal as well. Um different contexts, but you know I, I think there's something there about Portuguese colonialism that has spread out across across the foreign former Portuguese colonies. Um and, and ultimately as well, um and this is Alfredo's theory which I actually subscribe to, uh, is that it's still effectively a slave society. So in other words, anyone who puts a foot outside of their ascribed caste in a way uh mm. is immediately derided by the powers that are and and he very easily falls into that because he's he comes from a small town he's petty bourgeois his dad was some sort of kind of self-taught dentist of some sort uh this is this is how things how the myth goes um, so yeah, so it's easy to, to, a man who doesn't have any education other than a military academy either, you know, like it's probably basic education, then he went straight into the military academy. Um, so he's not really the smartest crane in the box, but he was able to, in those weird twists of fate, end up in a position of being the only viable candidate for capital and for the right. And, and with that, he moves a lot. And this is where the whole the fascism thing comes again. He moves a lot of people with him who will be very happy to indulge in that. And I was I was terrified looking at what was being shared on social media, both by journalists as well as by people themselves, of his supporters on the day of, of when he won the election, people who, who sported T-shirts saying Bolsonaro and had assault rifles in the picture, as well as sometimes often assault rifles in their hand. There was this guy, uh, I think it was somewhere around Sao Paulo, maybe Bahia, I don't remember anywhere it was, which are two very different thing places I should I should add, but it was it was a relatively big city. That's what I'm trying to say. Just walking through traffic with a shotgun, sh- shouting wow. Bolsonaro, and you see this like there's this former porn actor uh, who's become like a, a, a figure of like massive support for uh, Bolsonaro, and and he is proper like alt right, you know, very similar imagery again to the United States. Um, I was thinking that, yeah. 
and and you know like they they bring all these like big lads with their SUVs uh with you know these t-shirts saying Bolsonaro with some sort of like paramilitary ranking they they've self-ascribed and with their guns that they could buy and they run around thinking saying and possibly acting soon in a way that suggests that they're you know like law doesn't apply to them and that they can do whatever they want and they now rule brazil they are now the authority in brazil these white middle-class men are now the powerful in brazil so in terms of what his election means we didn't talk about his appointments by the way but we can we can definitely go back into under the chicago boys i think that's also very interesting yeah yeah exactly well we we can kind of get on to that because i mean there's what it will mean in policy terms there is the way that for all his kind of rhetoric of no matter what your race no matter what i'm pretty sure he even said no matter what your orientation is I don't think he said sexual, but I think he said orientation. Which means that means sexual orientation anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't sure if it was a kind of deliberate omission to make it more of a neutral statement or what. But... Um, that's how the Portuguese language works with sexuality anyway. Nothing is ever said outright anyway, so... Okay, fair, well, fair <laughs> enough. But, uh, but, but no, well, despite that kind of faux egalitarian rhetoric, which you obviously get in Trump speeches as well, you know. Yeah. This little, oh, yeah, he's for all little, Americans. Yeah, a little hat tip to equality. It's incredibly likely that he's going to consolidate the existing stratification of Brazilian society, be it in terms of gender roles, where, I mean, abortion is pretty much completely prohibited in mm. Brazil, isn't it? And it's, that's, a, it's a big, it's a big, topic of debate over there and, but it's not hugely likely that it will become legal whilst uh, whilst no. bolsonaro yeah. is is president and similarly as you say the class stratification will likely deepen because let's say he is a fascist which i'm quite convinced of i think that fascism is largely bourgeois reaction but takes a section of the working class along uh, with it i think on that note i just remember now like a really interesting but very tragic statistic or or rather a collection of evidence that I put together when I was doing some sort of pre-election prep and tweeting about it. You know, people say it's going to be a bloodbath, uh, which probably will probably be. But the truth is there is already a bloodbath in Brazil on the one hand for the better known police violence. You know, like Brazil has the biggest rate of homicides in the world. I think it was something like a record deaths last year by murder or homicide into something like 56,000 in one year. Yeah, um, and very, very wow. quickly, Bolsonaro's election is giving the green light to the police to kind Absolutely. of do what they More, want. He is a massive fan of the military police. I mean, he's a massive fan of military organization anyway, but certainly the military police and he will definitely give carte blanche for them to enact. And I, I had someone on Twitter say to me like, oh, but you know, there's only like 10% of the murders that I've done by the military police. Well, well, uh, yes, openly that's the record, but mm. what about all the other times that military police is either infiltrated or has somehow organized a situation in which there are different gangs operating against each other? You know, like these yeah. things are never just like, oh, you know, a copper in a whole uniform shot me and that's a police murder. There's far more to that. And it certainly, it will certainly matter in terms of Bolsonaro's uh, election that He's already promised to withdraw a few of the restrictions in terms of police facing prosecution in case of murder. So that is definitely going to aggravate. <laughs> but one of the things that also has happened before the election is that a few people were definitely registered as having been murdered by Bolsonaro supporters. And there might have been a lot more that we don't know of. But what I found mm. particularly telling and terrifying as well was the fact that just to give you an example, and I counted there were about like 10 deaths that were counted of the 
them, one was of a capoeira master who was black and a famous or at least outspoken PT supporter. So a black mm. man who is an outright supporter of the lefting party. The son of Kut, which is the exact equivalent to the TUC here, the Congress of Trade Unions. So the son of one of the Kut's secretaries. So again, the son of a left winger. And then a series of members of the LGBT community, including a trans woman that got beaten to death. So... Yeah. These are obviously the communities most endangered by Bolsonaro's election, but who already suffering prior to him taking power, prior to him imposing any kinds of policies that will make things worse uh, or better, perhaps, <laughs> to anyone. So, you know, like I, I find that really disturbing. And, you know, there's plenty of people who have already been talking about leaving the country. There are talks here about what we can do here in, in London, at least from my circles that I know of, of what we can do to support our LGBTQ sisters and brothers over there. So, you know, like there's a serious concern about at least these three groups, i.e. black people, LGBT community and openly active left politicians or campaigners. Because Bolsonaro's rhetoric about the left is, you know, that he'll imprison or deport them, or and I imagine that leaves out, you know, I'll kill them as well. Yeah. That could also be on his mind. And there was something you said, it was in like 1999, wasn't it? But he said that in order to sort out Brazil's problems, he'd have 30,000 people killed. Yeah, you needed, in order to get Brazil in order, you'd have to at least get another 30,000 people killed. And I think that was in connection with comments on Pinochet or Chile or something related to basically yes what well, you know his his hero right. yeah. so, yeah. government so um, again it's uh, him saying pinochet was great but he didn't go far <laughs> enough yeah yeah yeah. no like he'll say it and i said like he said that he just to bring it back to the question of who he's appointing to his cabinet he said he will appoint a few military chiefs to cabinet i haven't really seen a lot of those just yet Although maybe of the few names that he's mentioned so far, some of them, I don't think any of them are military. At least they don't have military titles. So I'm going to guess they're not. He has just appointed the first woman for the position of agricultural ministry. Okay, um, so his wasn't his transition team like 50 men and no women? Mm. <laughs> yeah, quite likely. His is in Bolsonaro, I mean Michel Temer, the uh, dream government. Bolsonaro, I think, but I do remember Temer's cabinet being just like all guys basically very white as well yeah i mean so yeah. far there's only white people on bolsonaro's cabinet or cabinet to be i guess but again the ones who should be mentioned we've already mentioned it in passing is obviously paul gedge who is the appointed minister of the economy or finance ministry whatever you want to call him and he is a chicago boy he is a massive fan of freeman and of Pinochet and Chile, I suspect as well, certainly of the economic plan there mm. at the time. That means deregulation, full-on privatization pushes, you know, full-on Ayn Rand level of free market wet dream. So I'm sure that's what they will be looking towards. Clearly, international capital has been loving that level of rhetoric. We saw the stock market in Brazil valuing a lot, actually, towards the end of the campaign and then after the election, which was a, a weird turn. CBC, the Canadian site, celebrating the new investment opportunities in Brazil. For the yeah, Canadian. yeah. Oh, yeah. I think I it was bet. Paul Mason who was sharing that on Twitter as well right after the election. All these different financial news outlets basically publishing articles about 
how this could be really profitable to you. Use up this opportunity now to make a hell of a lot of money, which, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, like, imagine all the people that can. And, and you know, this veers into another very worrying policy that Bolsonaro has stood by or has supported, which is the question of the Amazon and, and climate change. He's a climate change denier. As not to expect. Yeah, not again. <laughs> the, the similarities with Trump don't pass by unnoticed. And, you know, that means effectively an attack on on the indigenous people of the Amazon, of whom he has already said quite a few, at least tactless remarks of the sense of like, you know, you either keep up with history or you, you know, disappear. Great. But it also means, you know, the fact that there is a lot of capital in Brazil that gets money from the wood business and they're looking up at this enormous wealth of resources that they can just appropriate, resources that can be transformed into commodities and that which they haven't used up yet, which is obviously, you know, again, terrifying to say the least. So, So there is that. Then in terms of justice, another interesting appointment. Bolsonaro has chosen Sergio Moro, who is a judge. In fact, the judge who imprisoned or sentenced Lula. He is the new kind of super minister of justice because he has a series of portfolios. It's like justice and public security. And he has a series of portfolios under his arm at the moment. And he said, I think it was today, maybe yesterday, that Michel Temer will also have a position. Although that is yet to be known what exactly it is. And and that is kind of terrifying because while Bolsonaro might be an idiot, Michel Temer is certainly not. And he's just as rapidly right wing. You know, it was funny because a, a Portuguese comrade of mine was saying just around the time, it was either a couple of hours before it was fully 100% confirmed that Bolsonaro was going to win or had won, or maybe the few hours later, he tweeted saying, you know, whilst everyone is thinking of Bolsonaro, just imagine all the shitty things that Michel Temer has been planning on the backstages whilst this is happening, whilst the attention is not on him. And it's actually like, you know, it's a bit of a throwaway comment, but I think there's a truth behind it that is worrying and that we should pay attention to. And as I said, you know, like he hasn't really officially appointed, as far as I understand, any, well, there was a, there was a tenant in the army, but they're transitional team members. Yeah, all of them are women, actually. So there's another tenant I can see here. Sorry, I'm like looking at an article from El Pais, the Brazilian okay. version of it. But again, well, like um, these are 28 men to three to four women at this point. Well, um, speaking of transition teams, hopefully with Temer, he'll, if he is that similar to Donald Trump, after all, he'll do what Trump did with Chris Christie and just be like, yeah, yeah, you can have a role and then just completely fuck him off. <laughs> well, you know, this is the thing, right? Donald Trump is a maverick to a degree and clearly we know about all the different people he has appointed and then effectively fired or made such a mess of that people just stepped down. Uh, mm. And we keep seeing that. I mean, it has calm down a little bit the speed that it went at which, which it went at one point but you can still see it obviously you know with sessions and all that exactly it's yeah. fucking head rolled but, yeah that was good <laughs> but will that happen in brazil i mean brazil has a different you don't have midterms in the same way that you would have them in the states which obviously means that there isn't the same there is another set of elections but it's not the same level of, of sort of shake-up in terms of the system also the system of government from what i understand is so complex that a certain level of stability in terms of the, the alliances is necessary. I don't know. Maybe it could well be that things keep changing for the foreseeable. But... On the dig, they said that they don't really think Bolsonaro is fit to govern. So that, yeah, that he might, yeah, he might be an incompetent administrator. It's funny because I was having this conversation with Alfredo because he said that in the dig and he says that often that he wonders whether Bolsonaro will stay in power for very long. 
And that obviously begs the question, is that a good or a bad thing as well? But then I also asked, what if, you know, the real powers that are both capital as well as the army in Brazil, which is an incredibly powerful force. I don't think we should forget about that. The military, you know, like just because the military dictatorship ended doesn't mean that Brazil really dealt with the power that the military has as a structure in the whole country and certainly didn't deal with any of the people who had done horrible things. Not really, not in an appropriate way. Not like it happened in a way in Chile, I guess. Uh, and even then. But anyway, yeah. that's so the conversation we're having right now. But my question is, like, could these powers that are just use them as a sort of puppet leader? I mean, it sounds a little bit conspiracy theorist. I realize that. But it wouldn't be unheard of of a man who is this narcissistic, this megalomaniac. I love the fact that his middle name is Messiah, because I think <laughs> it went to his brain. But a man who is this much into himself, if he wouldn't very happily just be kept as some sort of shadow, well, as the governance whilst there's a real shadow government behind him that actually makes all the decisions. And yeah. and Alfredo to that shrugged and was like, Yeah, maybe maybe who you know, let let's let's we'll have to wait and see. The Brazilian situation on these shores has provoked a lot of consternation at the decades and decades old idea of socialism or barbarism. Because mm. mm. Momentum tweeted something including socialism yeah, and barbarism yeah. <laughs> in response to the election of Bolsonaro. And, you know, you'd think barbarism sounds pretty unappealing, but <laughs> I guess I've underestimated the British pundit class. Who <laughs> would you mean happily... Bolsonaro or...? I mean, I think they'd take barbarism over a lot of good things. But yeah, specifically this was over Bolsonaro. And they've kind of been saying, oh, what? So you use the situation in Brazil to say that socialism is good and better than fascism. How opportunistic of you. I'm pretty sure that was what James Ball said. Um, oh God. I don't know what happened to him lately. I mean, he's never great, but this, this is just gone a bit like, Jesus. I mean, they never there. shut up about the situation in Venezuela, do they? So fuck off. <laughs> it, it is a sort of fetish of the sort of liberal right in this country, that Venezuela is the massive boogeyman. As mm. if Venezuela had ever really posed a threat to Western capitalism in any shape or form. <laughs> but, you know, like, sorry, I don't want to, like, be a party pooper, but I wish, yeah, I wish that, I wish that had been the case. Huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, that's what I was saying earlier. The left in Brazil pursued two consensual politics, and although it was probably more confrontational, so did uh, Chavismo in Venezuela. Like, yeah. there was n not significant rebalancing of power in that country. But the issues going on in the country now are not because they went too far to the left or uh, whatever, <laughs> you know, again, you the wish... right wing shibboleth would have you believe. Yeah, exactly. I wonder yeah. if it has anything to do with America getting involved everywhere in fucking South America and the rest of the world for that matter. Well, mm. that is an interesting <laughs> aspect of Bolsonaro's election, of course, because Donald Trump was one of the first people to call him to congratulate him. I think yeah. followed by Maduro, actually. Steve Bannon was involved and the sort of same usual suspects, Cambridge Analytica and all that, were involved in Bolsonaro's electoral campaigns. And, and Bolsonaro has praised Steve Bannon, but Steve Bannon has praised Bolsonaro. I was thinking more even, I mean, yeah, 
I can totally understand why the so-called populist right, uh, basically the fascist right, might <laughs> want to uh, get involved in... Not that there's a fascist left. Um, <laughs> might, <laughs> might want to get involved in, in what's going on with Bolsonaro. But I was thinking more in terms of American imperialism as a more general thing that persists no matter who's in the White House. Good you old know, Coca-Cola imperialism. Coca-Cola yeah. imperialism, yeah. Because now Trump has got a major ally in the region and were he interested in regime change in Venezuela which he definitely is uh, I don't know if you've been listening to what John, <laughs> John Bolton that mustachioed fucking ghoul has been saying recently about like the axis of socialism or something and yeah. Cuba, Cuba <laughs> Venezuela and Nicaragua these are all places <laughs> that the Trump State Department have set their sights on they've totally replaced the USSR as a power block <laughs> <laughs> or Al-Qaeda uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, now, but no, yeah, now they have got a major ally in Latin America. Well, yeah, like as you were pointing out, the question, like you know, they replaced the USSR or later Al Qaeda, and every reactionary American, but in general administration, but certainly American administration, has to find this new axis of evil, right? And Trump has done that now with a geographically much closer enemy, which is easier to play in terms of people's imagination of this impending danger of socialism just across. Our shores very close by, or alternatively, you know, worse than socialism, migrants, which mm. plays again a very similar role because they will come more or less from the same countries, and as long as they speak Spanish or a language that is in English for them, it's all the same thing. It's all yeah. It's Even not if they're from like American Samoa or Puerto Rico, which is American. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it's this idea of like you know, sorry, you're not. Actually, you have me curious. Sorry, uh, do you know if like does Brazil have a big issue with so-called immigration and all that? in a manner like America does? No. In fact, their visa rule, I mean, I'm sure that obviously there's exceptions and there's borders with other Latin American countries where I'm sure that things are not as frictionless as that. But in terms mm. of visas for those who can afford them, they're not particularly expensive. So just like white travelers mostly is, is what I'm trying to say. It's super, super, super chill. I think a visa lasts for a whole year and I think you can even work for a little bit of that period. And it's not very controlled. That might change. But at this point, it's not really... So it's more of an endogenous sort of racism rather than yeah, appealing yeah, to all exactly. those hordes of immigrants. You don't have to, exactly, you don't have to go there when there is already an easy target for othering inside your own nation. You know, this enormous amount of incredibly poor, ooh, strangely enough, also happen to be black. I wonder why. Most of the case. <laughs> population in Brazil. And again, there's something else that I want to just point out in terms of a racial question in Brazil, because I've talked about this at a couple of radio stations the day after the elections. And when I was talking to the producers, they're saying, oh, how can he be racist? Bolsonaro be racist? He has black people on his team. And I'm thinking, well, okay, uh, that's not an impossibility. But at the same time, also, you need to understand that in Brazil, it's the kind of society that is so racist that there is literally different shades of being black. And they right. Were, it was a lot more stratified in colonial times, right? Than in well, the U.S. where there was black and there was white and that was it. Exactly. Right, for a long in time. In Brazil, constantly you hear these stories about, particularly it happens in, in sort of popular culture of Brazilian pageants, you know, beauty pageants and things like that. 
Um, there was mm-hmm. a recent one for, I think it was a few years ago now, like maybe two, three or something. They did a sort of a reality TV show contest thing for the next carnival ladies. So every carnival, there is the female face of that year's carnival for TV and so on mm-hmm. is chosen, right? Like whatever you want to call them, the bell of the ball or whatever. And that year they decided to have a TV competition and the woman who won was black. Her skin was yeah. dark than you would usually necessarily see on Brazilian TV. And she was disqualified after having won, or was uh-huh. chosen or disqualified. She ended up not being the one chosen to do what she had won the pageant for. And it caused a massive race scandal for obvious reasons in yeah. Brazil because it was very clear because she was replaced by a woman who was mixed race but lighter than her. And it was very clear there was a question of, again, skin tone, literally, by how dark do you get? And in Brazil, that is very, very obvious, very blatant, very prevalent. So for our European, very white, privileged eyes, we might look at Brazilian TV and think, actually, it looks really diverse. But as far as the actual population is concerned, the black population is the minority majority, really, of Brazil. That is not the case at all. You don't really see that many actually black people on TV and certainly not in roles that are not playing the trope already. It just goes to show that race is really very much a social construct. And even in the modern time, where wherever you go, somebody who's black somewhere could be not black somewhere else. And Absolutely. It's, it's... I mean, in the case of, again, Portuguese colonialism and Portuguese speaking countries, there is an approach to race and to eugenics, actually, that was different from yeah. the French and the English speaking or even Dutch speaking colonialisms. And if you wonder why I know so much about this is because my dad is a Portuguese colonial historian. <laughs> so I've been, right. I've been indoctrinated in this my whole life. He focuses <laughs> mostly on Angola, but you see exactly the same phenomena happening there in terms of social stratification to this day, particularly in terms mm. of race, in that the approach of Portuguese colonialism was uh, mixing in order to embedder the race, whilst there were other approaches like the French approach, which was no situation, so no mixing of races. Yes. I- Black, right? And I don't know why the approach was anymore. I'm sure my dad could tell you lots about that. But that then is reflected in the way that you see societies, Portuguese speaking, formerly colonial societies in Portugal as well, of course. So much so that the language, there is a word for every different skin tone. And by that, I also mean different racial mixing in Portuguese. I know it was a former colony of Spain rather than Portugal, but Argentina for a lot of the 20th century underwent a process of trying to whiten itself. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I, I would have suspected that the Spanish approach to race during colonial period was probably not too dissimilar from the Portuguese one. I don't know because it's not my field, but and I only know more about the Portuguese case. But but yeah, it's it's reflected. It's definitely reflected in society up to this day, and it then ends up being reflected in the way that politically these things get played out. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the places where Fernando Haddad, the the PT candidate, had the biggest support were the areas with majority black and impoverished populations. Mm. Whilst Bolsonaro was exactly the, the, I mean, it was almost cartoonish. It was the exact opposite (laughs) of the the wealthier, whiter demographics that were voting for him. Not surprising. 
Yeah. Now, I, I remember the other thing that I wanted to explore, and it's perhaps the most daunting one. I don't know, like, how you guys feel, but it possibly should be left for the end of the conversation, which is really the question of the future of Brazil and the future of the left in Brazil. Yeah. Uh, mm. I mean, earlier on, I was asking what you think the future of the Workers' Party is. And I think we agreed that in the past they'd taken too consensual a tone in their politics. Do you think that a more aggressive and confrontational approach to not just the organized political right but to capital to vested interests in the country is kind of the only way that the pt could save itself short of you know getting lula out of prison and having him run because he probably would win well short of getting lula to perform the miracles that he performs i suspect that the pt has gone through a bit of a process of pacification although to degree for different reasons from social democracy in europe at least and i think it has ruined much of its opportunities of building once again a cross-class base that is viable in terms of electoral success what that spells for the Brazilian left is actually very depressing. I mean, on the one hand, it spells an opportunity for something completely new, but that will take a long time and it will have to be born at this point in an environment of a struggle, given, you know, <laughs> Bolsonaro's election. Whilst at the same time, that might radicalize some elements a bit more. Yeah, I, do you I... think there will be a kind of resurgence of the radical left? Because the PT has been the primary vehicle for the left in the last, you know, let's just say two decades. But do you think that people may end up in the same situation that Dilma Rousseff was decades ago in kind of actually physically fighting? the regime well that is a double question of what will happen in terms of governance i mean if it becomes a regime that truly quashes any kind of dissent then yeah then probably we will see people i mean that i have no doubt that the mm. brazilian left and then even progressive wings of politics in brazil that wouldn't necessarily be described as the far left will put up a fight whether they're enough to win at the end it's a different question but there will be definitely pockets of resistance of that i have no doubt and it has a very rich history brazil of dissent of radicalism of a cultural output that is born out of radicalism and dissent from music to literature to cinema so you know they have this you know, I don't want to like go and, and sort of drool all over, all over Brazil because I do love the country and its culture. So I don't want to sound too psychophantic, but they have this incredible capacity to create beauty out of very ugly situations. And this sounds like such a fucking mm -hmm. trope. Oh my God, I'm such a cliche. But anyway, <laughs> but it's sort of true. There's a part of truth in this cliche as with most cliches. So I'm sure that will be certainly the question in the future. What that means politically and again for the real lives of millions of Brazilians is actually there's a part of me that thinks really dire. We will probably see deaths continuing, if not expanding. The underreporting of deaths that in the new narrative don't matter, obviously, which is even more tragic. And in general, just a possibly slow, possibly not immediately noticeable, but curtailing of freedoms, particularly of academic freedoms and certain types of freedom of expression that I would suspect will be far more pernicious and slow moving to a point that we could immediately point the finger at, you know, censoring. And when so, they would be constantly battled by the right also saying things like, oh, you're curtailing my freedom of speech. So, you know, I, I suspect that's what's going to happen. I think there's interesting elements in the Brazilian social movements that I think can bring out interesting new political 
ideas and strands and spaces for debate that come particularly from the LGBTQ community. They can be incredibly radical and incredibly inspiring. The women's movement that was built around Bolsonaro against Bolsonaro was something unheard of in Brazil before. I mean, to that scale, from what I heard from some Brazilian friends I have over there, one of which is involved in the El Now and in the Women Against Fascism organizations. And she was very, very impressed by what was going on and very excited and she was obviously gutted with the results ultimately, but, you know, it's sort of like, you know, chin up and we continue. Yeah. Obviously, the student movement has been vibrant and I'm sure will continue to reinvent uh, ways of bypassing certain laws that don't allow them to express political opinion. There has been a series of attacks on freedom of expression inside schools and universities, both by the military, allegedly because universities cannot do political propaganda in terms of choosing a candidate to campaign for. So that's why you saw all those banners being pulled mm. out of universities, like those 20 universities that got stormed in. That was the argument the police used, was that by law you're not allowed. But these were anti-fascist banners, not really pro or anti-Bolsonaro. Yeah. So clearly there was a bit of a misuse, to say the least, of the law. But at the same time, you've also seen, uh, worryingly, you know, kids coming into university, pulling all these stunts, wearing military uniform or camouflage kind of clothing and filming themselves, telling their colleagues, like, you know, you're now going to see who's boss and things like that, and wearing guns, even if they, that kind of like imagery, or even some ratting on their teachers, saying that the teacher has been promoting communist propaganda by, I don't know exactly even by what, probably just by, I don't know, maybe teaching evolutionary, evolutionary <laughs> theory or something. I don't exactly know what they're explaining about. So you've seen... The common oh, cultural Marxism, you know? Yeah. Well, that does seem to be what Bolsonaro is like. He is the kind of person who will call a social democrat a communist. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, they call them mortadella. Mortadella is... Well, mortadella, the ham, right? Like, the cured meat. Uh, mm. And they call them all like that. And the reason for so, that... Oh, is that like the Brazilian gammon? It's not applied in the same way. Uh, <laughs> It's simply because the PT used to, in the sort of early Lula days, during rallies, hand out sandwiches, mortadella sandwiches, and I think money as well, maybe, mm. to, well, to the crowd. Cool. Yeah, and it's like, you know, you have people starving in Brazil. You know, like, I'm not saying, like, starving like people are in Yemen now, but starving is in, you know, like, people are very, very poor. Like Undernourished, yeah, yeah. Everyone likes the free food, and certainly people who work three jobs to stay alive will. So, you know, like, by all means, yeah. <laughs> but that's what they're now called by Bolsonaro, or by the right. And they then call anyone like that, you know, like, it's sort of the Reds, right? Like, they will call anyone a Red, who will have an opinion mm-hmm. that goes beyond, again, God, fatherland, and family. So yeah, so you see a lot of that going on. But then you also see, in this very same spaces, in the universities and schools, people reacting in a positive way. Professors coming out, signing letters against Bolsonaro, and being supported by academia across the world as well. Students organizing protests, particularly in big urban centers like Rio and Sao Paulo. So any space of learning tends to be a, a good space for dissent and for radical action against oppression. So I hope that that's also going to be the case in Brazil. And a lot of the protests originally in 2012, 2013, that to a degree did also bring Dilma down. Actually, didn't speak much about that, but were led. But originally... they were kind of co-opted, weren't they, they by were... reaction? Yeah, that's the thing. They were originally led by students, by working class people. It was all about bus fares originally. And it was funny because when I was in Brazil in early 2012, there were already like small protests happening in Rio about it. I was having drinks with some 
friends who were university or were university students at the time and people who obviously they introduced me to and they were all talking about this being a good mobile these are all people of the left or left inclinations and they're all saying this is a good mm. space to mobilize you know a social movement for social rights for cheaper bus fares for a better welfare state and so on and mm. then actually what happened is the PT completely disowned this movement in a way and it was then able to be co-opted by a far right that could see it as a brilliant place to mobilize people who need cheaper fares you know people who are incredibly impoverished and looking for a change as we talked about before you have that constant struggle on the streets going on i think that we need to have a serious conversation as far as the internationalist left is concerned about what we do vis-a-vis brazil and what we can do obviously that starts with listening to what brazilians need us to do but then what are we ready do as well right because there seems to me very often there's a massive gap between okay we listen to what our comrades in difficult situations need and then we don't do anything because the left has very much in the west lost its tradition of action across borders with a few exceptions obviously applying so yeah so i think we really need to rethink that very seriously and i i particularly say this because i was in egypt during the so-called arab spring and at the time that was the question that everyone was asking is like what are we going to do to help the left in Egypt? And I then remember coming back, there being a series of workshops and speeches and talks about it. And in the end, it all added up to pretty much intellectual masturbation and not much was done beyond. I would have hoped that a Britain that has changed so much politically in the last three years alone would have enough of at least some sort of home to organize a serious solidarity campaign that is actually efficient to some degree in supporting our comrades in brazil yeah absolutely god i just remember in 2016 seeing the news of the coup against dilma rousseff and thinking you know they can't possibly get away with this this is so transparently fucking bogus and partisan and it was all just kind of like a bad dream you know of course it'll they'll sort it out it'll be over two years later here we are you know that government was able to run on for a couple of years the coup did succeed and now something you know so much worse has has taken the place it's a very sad situation very distressing. Yeah, I mean, I I honestly don't know exactly what to propose that ultimately doesn't feel somewhat tokenistic, actually. And that is the sad part of it. Like, what can we do that is really helpful? And yeah, I think obviously more internationalist cooperation is necessary. Constantly contradicting the normalization of this new government and, you know, legitimization of this new government in our own media, in our own governmental structures, not allowing for Theresa May to continue. Like, Britain has has a series of both trade as well as military deals with Brazil. And if we can operate in that way somehow, through our own boycotting of some sort of horrible pro-capitalist exchange between our own capitalist class and the Brazilian one, then I think that's a good way to go forward. Yeah, I don't know. It's a conversation that we need to be having. ASAP, I suspect. Can't argue with that. Um, <laughs> yeah. If you heard the one at Trouble Trap House with Benjamin, he's not academic, but he knows a lot of details that I think probably would be lost a little bit on a certain audience here. Yeah. Because he knows loads of anecdotes that I don't because he lives there about all kinds of different supporters of Bolsonaro, like senators and so on. Seriously, I mean, if you think it's a circus in America, Brazil takes the award. Yeah. Oh, there's no competition. Yeah. Like the level of, I mean, if it's not the porn actor, it's, well, there's the brothel owner who won in America now, actually. So that's not too the, far the off. The dead one. Yeah, the dead one, exactly. <laughs> it's not too far off, to be fair. But there's like lots of stories like that in Brazil. 
But I guess, you know, I can build the comparisons with what we can do here and the situation that we don't find ourselves in here. Yeah. And the lessons that the left here should learn. The blessings that we should count in a way. Yeah, absolutely. That the left hasn't fucked up so much or hasn't been left in such a terrible situation due to the complexity of different factors coming together. Yeah. That's our only option. And, you know, yeah. we talk about Bolsonaro, but things could have gone very differently in France not too long yeah. ago. So Yeah. Yeah, and I think that the stuff about not kind of trying to pursue a too consensual approach, trying to actually be confrontational in what we're doing. I think that's probably an important lesson for the Corbyn movement. Yeah. Um, you know, not trying to reach too much of a settlement with capital yeah, when it will and, never, ever accept us. And I think there's the degree to voluntary and involuntary fetishization of basically a post-war agreement with capital, you know, understandably, because it did mean an enormous improvement for the working class in this country at the time. But at the same time, that's that's not what you want for the 21st century. You don't want to just go back to 19. 19- 45 or 52 even for that matter we want to go far beyond that so yes i think it's a lesson to learn from social democratic movements of more recent times how social democracy effectively reformism isn't enough and it's funny that you know that you mentioned the whole question of fascination with the whole barbarism or revolution that comes from the same source well let's not go into kowski let's just say like in terms of rosa luxemburg the same person who also immediately recognized social democracy as a failing project even though she was part and parcel of building social democracy in Germany. So, you know, I don't think it's necessarily coincidental that, well, I know it's the 100th anniversary of her death as well, but that she is being brought up so often. But I am, I think in many respects, I'm a massive Luxembourgist, so I'm too biased. I'm too biased to source. I suppose so are the people defending a social democratic tradition that she decried and saying, no, no, actually, we can have this instead of socialism or barbarism. They're certainly invested in trying to defend that form of politics. Mm. Yeah, I think there's also people who do believe in it quite sincerely. But within the Labour Party at the moment, I would suggest you see that mostly in the kind of old brownite element of things or people who think they're actually socialists when I would never call them socialist. Or even to a degree, although there are different shades to it, a certain class of Benite as well. Because when you see in, in this new wave of people who either come from the far left of different ages or have come through somehow the Corbyn movement, when they defend social democracy as a solution, more often than not, it's because they either fail to understand its handicaps or they believe that to demand more could become fracturing for the movement at this stage and could become yeah. a danger to Corbyn. And, you know, right. there's this like Corbyn above or rather, you know, the movement as it stands above all, we must defend. And so we cannot push even our own leadership to go further to the left. And I think that's problematic yeah. a, because it doesn't prepare us for a Labour Party without Corbyn. And I think we should be preparing for that for Absolutely. a variety of reasons, right? Like it's not just because the man, I don't wish him any harm and I hope he stays where he is in power for the longest period you know naturally possible i guess and not something to embalm embalm him or anything like that no no leninistic options there as far as i'm concerned but you know uh (laughs) embalm corbyn (laughs) i wouldn't have a problem with arming john mcdonald you know even if just for the for the pure wet dream that it would be to see john mcdonald with a kalashnikov in hand but you know (laughs) me and my slash fantasy ideas. Uh, but, you know, I thought, you know, that would be an amazing podcast. Now I'm thinking of <laughs> imagine like a whole like discussion on the politics of lust inside 
feminist movement. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Might have to be a woman doing it before there's like wild accusations of objectification and sexism, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. What do you yeah, think? Should it... I should I just get drunk with Ash Sarker and record a podcast like we're both getting drunk on red wine and just discussing who's the hottest in the shadow cabinet? But um, like Joanna, it's been awesome talking to you. I think we've learned a lot and got a lot of interesting perspectives from you. I have so, to like, say, I was at one point when you were focusing on the sort of like pre uh, you know like the last 10 years I was like oh my god I talk <laughs> as much as I know from the last year so <laughs> let's just talk about what's happened recently because I have more data about but yeah like I hope it's not like really shitty and by all means you know like feel free to edit shit out that I said that actually like you've heard somewhere else that is bullshit I trust uh, I trust no, others. But really, it's been great having you on. Thanks it's been very educational for me, even to you humbly said you're not a master of this subject, but I've learned a lot. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, guys. <laughs>